evening. Yes, so if you'd like to uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the passage this evening follows on from the last two sermons on the resurrection of Jesus in verses 1 to 11, and then the resurrection of the dead, verses 12 to 34. In that second section, which Dav covered two weeks ago, I think, uh, we saw Paul contending with those in Corinth, who this letter sent to, who disputed the resurrection. And we see Paul demolish their arguments against the resurrection. Now, from verses 35 onwards, Paul addresses the questions that the Greek critics have been asking. The Greeks did not believe in reincarnation. They literally derided it, and they applied that same logic to the resurrection. So let's read 1 Corinthians verses 15, sorry, chapter 15, verses 35 onwards passage entitled The Resurrection Body. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of the sin, power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he ha- gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Pray the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word this evening. grateful to Dav for uh, beginning this evening with that quote from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 20, about Jesus appearing to the disciples on the evening of the first day of the week. It's Easter Sunday. It's the Resurrection Sunday. And just as Jesus' disciples met on the evening of the first day of the week, we too are meeting on the evening of the first day. Day of the week. We're carrying out the pattern set, if you like, by the first believers, and we still believe it's the right thing to do. And I'm very pleased to see you all here. Jesus met with the disciples in that upper room in the evening there, lit by small lamps, casting flickering shadows on the wall in excitement, anticipation, maybe fear. We do not need to meet in fear this evening. The doors are not locked. But we do meet, and we should meet, with excitement and anticipation. Jesus is among us right now. Perhaps he's come here to meet with you this evening. We've heard a lot today about the resurrection, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, we're going to hear about your resurrection. What will it be like? A clue is given to us in that short section from John 20 because it says that Jesus showed them the wounds to his hands and his side. Now, the rational side of you is saying, how is that possible? How did Jesus appear among them with the door locked out of thin air? What does this mean for us when we have our resurrection bodies? What will it be like? This is, as Paul said, a profound mystery. Well, I've got three headings for you this evening, as you'd expect. Um, and there are, well, I'll say there are question sheets, but they've all gone. I did eight. I think we might have to get into the habit of doing more question sheets, but it's good that they're all gone. Um, and after I've finished speaking, I hope I'm not going to be too long, we're going to um, have another song, and then there'll be an opportunity for prayer in response, an opportunity for open prayer on this evening of the first day of the week, and then we'll have our final song. So I've got three headings, and I'm going to read um, from verses 35 down to 41. I'm going to see if you can work out what my first heading is, because there's a certain word that's mentioned no less than four times in this reading. So let's listen along to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be... You don't plant an oak tree in the ground, do you? You just put a seed. But just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs 
from Star in Splendor. Anyone guess what the first title is, first heading? What word? Splendor. Splendor. The question posed in verse 35 is a simple one, a straightforward one, and one that even today people may ask. How are the dead raised? What is this about the resurrection body? Ask yourself, though, what do you believe about yourself? What do you believe? Are you just a flesh and blood automaton, like a robot, if you like, just constructed of flesh and bones, motivated and moved through life by, I don't know, instinct, emotions, by thought processes? Or do you think that you have a spirit? Are you just flesh and blood, or do you think you have a soul? If you think you're just flesh and blood, you deny the truth of things like I don't know, morality or values or kindness or love, those kind of um, indescribable, intangible things that come from a soul, from a spirit. If you agree with me that you do have a spirit that inhabits the flesh and blood body, the flesh, bone and blood body, then what happens when this body stops functioning? What happens to the spirit? When the wheels cease to turn, where does the driver go, if you like? Or when the lights go out, where does the sum total of all your life's long experiences, your beliefs, your activities, your loves, your hates, your anxieties, where does all that go? What happens to it? If you're an atheist, if you're an atheist and believe there is nothing when you die, it is a really bleak prospect. And it begs the question, what's the point of it all if there really is nothing and you are just flesh and blood? But Paul points to the splendor of the creator God. Firstly, he depicts the humble seed in verses 36 to 38. Then he depicts the differences between the different kinds of creatures in verse 39. And both illustrate the creator God, the maker of heaven and earth, makes all things to inhabit the space which he's designed them to live in. Will he not also design a body for you to live in, in heaven, when you reach the heavenly realms? Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. We're very familiar with our earthly bodies, aren't we? We live in them. The flesh and blood of our earthly bodies that we now inhabit are no more fit to dwell in heaven, if you like, than than this body now I'm living in is fit to dwell in outer space, in a vacuum of space, or in the depths of the sea, the deep ocean. There are heavenly bodies, as we know, because angels, we heard from that reading this morning about um, that first morning of the resurrection day when the angels appeared to the disciples. Angels are heavenly bodies, and they just appear, and they disappear. Sometimes they appear as people in shining white, like lightning, as, as Dan read this morning. Other times, they are just appear as ordinary men, and the Bible testifies to that. So there are heavenly bodies. You know, mankind's had to invent technology to support our fragile beings under the sea or in the vacuum of space. But God is the creator of all things, so surely he can do that for us. There's, it's nothing for him to create for you a new body, a resurrection body. He called the whole of creation out of nothing just by the power of his word. 
How easy is it, therefore, for him to do the same for you in creating your heavenly body? There is, of course, no such thing as reincarnation. Strangely, millions of people around the world still believe in it. And the Greeks, at that time, the time of Jesus, did believe in spirits, but they ridiculed the idea that a spirit could go back and inhabit the decaying flesh or return to a dead body. Nature teaches us many things, of course, but they're not the same. Let's look at some of the examples. Look at the butterfly. That comes from the humble caterpillar. Yet this is not a transformer like in the movies that can change back from a car into a robot or, and back into a car. Though it does go through a transformation from the humble caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. But it's not the same. It's not a repeater. It cannot go back and do the same thing over again. It cannot go endlessly around the cycle, if you like, of being a butterfly, back to a caterpillar, back to a butterfly. It still dies in the end, and it only ever transforms once. And if you remember the Bible accounts of Jesus' life, Jesus resurrected several people back to life during his earthly ministry. But they did not have resurrection bodies. Lazarus didn't come out of the tomb with a resurrection body. And they probably still grew old and decayed, had aches and pains, and died a second time, maybe years later. So, the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. God made all things splendid in its time. The stars, the planets, the moon, all in its time and place. What has yet to be revealed to us has its own splendor too. But isn't that reassuring? Don't you wonder sometimes, though, what that will be like? So the resurrection body he has designed and is ready for us to transform into is a splendid body designed to inhabit heaven. I don't think we'll be sitting around on clouds in white garments with wings, plucking at harps with little kind of um, rings around our head. But it's quite clear that those heavenly bodies have no place here on the corruptible earth. It's a whole different thing. Now in his second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul writing about the Jewish people today in their scripture, the Torah, says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 15. He says, even to this day when Moses, that's the ancient scripture, is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Don't you want that veil to be taken away so you can see Jesus plainly face-to-face on that day? Do you want the freedom that comes from being in him to be transformed into his resurrected image? ever-increasing glory, joy, peace. And if you do, then you need to listen to him and obey his word. But more than that, realize that you cannot achieve this as the reincarnationists would have it, just by being a better person. You can't go around the cycle of being a better person to get to heaven. You can only achieve this by believing in him because he has achieved it for us.
as we saw this morning. And then later on in uh, his second letter to Corinthians, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul continues um, in verse 4 saying, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, that's the devil, Satan, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Don't we want to see the face of Christ? So in summary on this point, we have a splendid body now. You may not think your body is that splendid, but we do have a splendid body, fearfully and wonderfully made, as the Bible says, made by him. But it's sown in this imperfect world. Therefore, it will decay and it will die. And yet we have a perfect, splendid body to look forward to also, equipped especially for us to live in heaven. Now, my second heading is this, opposites attract. Let's uh, look at verse 42 to 49. And what we see in verses 42 to 49 in chapter 15 here is a whole set, a series of opposites. Verse 42, we have the, the perishable body versus the raised imperishable one. Verse 43, got the body sown in dishonor, that is, in our fallen sinful world, and then raised in glory, that's the perfect, glorious, and eternal heaven. And in verse 43, we've got weakness compared to power. Verse 44, the natural body versus the spiritual body. Then we have this explanation in verse 45 about Adam. It says that Adam was born a man. The first man, the first man Adam, became a living being. And we are all descended from Adam, of course. We all have inherited that sinful nature, corrupted by the devil, way back in the Garden of Eden. All who live on earth have that, all also have that death sentence that comes with a sinful nature. But the last Adam is Jesus, the second model, if you like, of mankind, the God-man, Jesus, who is a life-giving spirit. Of course, he's part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a spirit of righteousness. He is the life-giving spirit, because through the Spirit, when we read the Scriptures, we discover eternal life through him, through our understanding, as the Spirit reveals understanding of the Bible. And then in verse 47, there's a bit of a recap. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. And he goes on. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, that's us, in our sinful nature and our death and decay. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, I, Adam, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man, that is, Jesus. If Jesus became the life-giving spirit, we become the life-given spirit. Spirit, the Spirit's given to us. The Spirit we have, our soul, if you like, living in our bodies, is given the Spirit of eternal life, the life given Spirit. And this is all part of God's plan for mankind. Now, you may complain about your earthly body, about the aches, pains you suffer. As you get older, perhaps some dissatisfaction 
about your body. You know, I, I always wished I was taller. I wish now I had more hair. We may all have things that we're dissatisfied with about our bodies. And even life itself, the life of living, we may be dissatisfied with how things turned out in our jobs or, or our education, our life choices, or even the fate we all face to die one day. That is a huge dissatisfaction, isn't it? The fact that we have to deal with that, getting old and dying. But you see, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that God set eternity in the hearts of mankind. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve, who were originally all immortal before the fall, corrupted the whole creation and brought death into the world. So we have inherited that desire, that longing for life, for immortality. We abhor death. We may fear it, dread it, hate it. Because to us, it's unnatural. It's an obstacle. We should never have had to face death. Adam and Eve weren't made to face death. It shouldn't have been there. Animals don't fear death. I don't know how many of you have seen an animal die. They have no concept of death. They may cry out, cry out in pain or suffering, but never in fear. Some animals, when they're dying, they literally just go off, curl up in their beds and die. Or find, off, find a bush or something or a hedge, crawl under it and die. They never tasted the fruit of the, of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. So they have no concept of death. There's no fear. But to us, who have, through Adam and Eve, tasted that fruit of the knowledge, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we understand death, what death is. It's unnatural to us. We hate it. Romans 8, verse 20, 21 says this. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And you have that hope, that liberation from the bondage to decay, if you believe in Christ Jesus. You can be brought into that freedom and glory as a child of God, if you too believe in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's wonderful. These mortal bodies, these vessels... They will let us down one day, and we will all die, and we will be changed. I'm always drawn to shipwrecks and abandoned boats and driving along the north coast of uh, Wales last week. I I could spot a few in some of those muddy creeks, and where Ross was down at Pensarn Harbour near um, Lambeda. The tide was out, and there's a lot of semi-derelict boats there. And when you see them, I always look at them and think, somebody made that boat Somebody built it, spent time, energy, and money on it. Somebody sailed it, maybe worked in it, enjoyed time in it, travelled many miles to different ports and harbours in different sea conditions along the coast on sunny days like this one, or maybe even stormy days. But now it lies there, half full of mud and water, covered inside and out in barnacles and weed, just rotting away, literally washed up in the creek. No more use to anyone. One day, these mortal bodies will be like that. Abandoned by your spirit, left to decay. To return to the dust from which it came. That is why Paul draws these comparisons. 
We don't want a body that's perishable, dishonored, weak, natural, dust and earth. We want a body that is raised, imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. All the things that Paul describes in these verses. One last thing to say on this heading. The word perishable and imperishable in the Greek text can refer to the whole being. Another translation of that word is corruptible or incorruptible. Our spirit that dwells in this body on earth is corruptible. Corruptible by the ways of the world, our sinful nature. But one day we will be incorruptible, free of sin, free of temptation. Nothing will be able to stain us and sully our spirit with that resurrection body. We will be fully renewed beyond the sin and temptation. Opposites attract. In our fallen nature, we desire the heavenly nature. This is entirely natural, but many people do not express it through Christ, but turn to all sorts of alternatives that are false. False religion, false spirituality, false hopes. But we as Christians have hope in the eternal Father in heaven and in Jesus the resurrected model of righteousness. So what will this change be like? Let's return to the original question of verse 35. What will it be like to be raised? This is my third heading, the glorious change, verse 50 to 56. The Greeks weren't stupid, as I mentioned earlier. They knew that in the resurrection, our spot, it could not re-inhabit the decaying remains. A lot of people nowadays are cremated The spirit couldn't re-inhabit the ashes, the bones or the dust that is left of our bodies in the ground. So they saw the resurrection as laughable, and that affected the Corinthian church. And Paul's writing against that, but Christians know the difference. This church in Corinth is being reminded in Paul's letter here. He says, verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpets, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Immortality. That's where all That's what we're all longing for. People who don't even know it are longing for immortality. But coming back to Jesus, the only way we can explain this kind of mystery, as Paul describes it, is that as Jesus visited those disciples on that evening, on that first evening of the first day of the week, that Sunday evening in the upper room, he was in some kind of fifth dimension. He had a physical presence they could see and touch, and he had these life-defying wounds to his body, and he had the power to appear and disappear again. He was outside the normal laws of nature that apply to us. The laws of nature say we cannot appear and disappear at will. I can't disappear here and appear in the manse, or walk through a wall or a door that's closed. I cannot bear wounds, death, you know, deadly wounds, and then walk around as normal. So he was outside the normal laws of nature. And one day we too, in the resurrection body, will be in that kind of fifth dimension beyond the nature that our heads and our eyes and our minds understand from what we see around us now. 
it's, it's hard for us to conceive what it will be like. Jesus appeared on earth in those days so that he could continue to teach the disciples. But then, of course, he was lifted up to heaven. Did we read in Acts chapter 1, if you, if you turn to Acts 1, um, verse 3, we read this. After his suffering, that's Jesus, he presented himself to them, that's the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And we know, of course, he appeared in different places. Then later in Acts 1 verse 9, it is written that he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. We too, one day, will be raised up and we will meet him in the air. We will be raised up to heaven. The life-giving spirit will have victory over death. Verse 54 When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So can you imagine that day? When Jesus was taken up to heaven in Acts, we also read this of his disciples. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly, again, two men dressed in white stood beside him, heavenly bodies, angels, just appearing. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up at the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He will return one day, riding on the clouds at the trumpet call, and those who are alive and, and believe in him will be raised up with him Those who are already dead, asleep, as Paul calls it, they too will rise. But can you imagine the scene? I'm not sure if any of you here ever watch zombie movies. I hope you don't. (laughs) I'm sure it's not going to be like a zombie movie. But can you imagine being distracted by the sight and the sound in the sky, the clouds, and Jesus with his army of angels appearing all over the world simultaneously to everyone, and you can't really conceive what that day is going to be like. And then suddenly, in the graveyards, all across the country, all across the world, even from graves that are not known about. And this church here doesn't stand on consecrated grounds, as far as I know. There are no graves in this, um, on this plot of land. But graves that are not known about, even from the seas, everywhere, all across the deserts, wherever people, believers have died, believers will rise up out of the ground, out of the oceans, transformed into their imperishable heavenly bodies. How many of you have been to the uh, Air Force's memorial up in um, Runnymede? I don't know if anyone's ever been. There's a white building stands up on a hill by Runnymede. It's a memorial to the Air Forces, who um, members of the Air Forces, servicemen who died in the Second World War, who have no known grave. There are 20,456 names with no known grave. Many of them, of course, were lost in the sea. And their remains are just lost somewhere in the ocean, lost amongst the seaweed and just sunk into the mud and gone. I wonder how many of those were believers and how many will just literally rise up out of the seabed and up through the ocean and up into the sky with an imperishable body. What will they look like? It's an incredible thing to contemplate. Now, Wayne Grudem, who some of you know of, the American Bible scholar, 
teaches that we will look like ourselves so that we will be recognisable to each other in the same way that Jesus was recognisable to the disciples. He looked slightly different, as we know, on the road to Emmaus. Two disciples there didn't actually recognise him straight away. Maybe he had a way of changing his appearance or maybe he looked younger and better and healthier than when they'd last seen him. But we will be changed because we will be perfect. So those who were disfigured, for example, will look healthy. Those who are sick will look well. Those who are blind will have clear vision. Those who had disabilities or missing limbs will be whole and mobile again. And it's wonderful, isn't it? If you die very old, if you're in your 90s, for example, how will you look? Again, Wayne Gruden points to the optimum time of life. As children, we grow and we change, we develop, we get taller and stronger and our bodies change. But around the age of 25, sorry kids, you will stop. That's around the perfect physical age. And around 27, sorry folks, you start to decay. I started losing my hair, I think, when I was about 27. Um, So I'm not saying this is the same for everyone, of course, but it's around about that. But it means if a child, for example, died at the age of 10 and they're a believer, their resurrection body will be how they would have looked at the age of 25. If someone dies when they're age 90, they too will have a resurrection body that looks around the age of 25. They will be perfect, as perfect as their body was ever going to look. But isn't that wonderful? I can see you all thinking of the days when you had more hair and slimmer waists and thinking, yeah, that'd be great to be like that again. But it will be a perfect resurrection body ascending to heaven. And the better news, it'll be for all eternity. All eternity. We will be worshipping the Lord around the throne of heaven with all the saints in glory, the heavenly city glorifying the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful thing. And we will see one another, see people there that we maybe didn't even know were Christians. You know, the only body in heaven, when you think about it, that does bear any scars, that has any imperfections or injuries, is that of Jesus himself. We know from the account of his resurrection body, he bore the scars of the crucifixion as the disciples testified. But that's because they are the crown of glory. They show They are his triumph. They show his triumph over death. But you, you will have perfect, imperishable bodies. Don't you want to be there one day in heaven? Don't you want that? Because what is the alternative? What if you think or if you feel, well, do you know what? I don't believe all this nonsense. What if you refuse to believe? What if you think, actually, just... It's a nice storybook, but actually, it's not really for me. Or, yeah, those guys, they're all, they're all just kidding themselves. It's not really true. What is there to look forward to then? The alternative is this. Your spirit will remain, because you do have a spirit, separated from your earthly body when you die, but not having a heavenly body. Where will your spirit go? Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, gives us a clue. Matthew 10, 28, this is Jesus talking. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body 
in hell. I have a theory on hell. Imagine this. Try and use your imagination. Imagine being in a pitch dark room, entirely alone. No sound, no sight, completely pitch dark and totally silent. Nobody will answer when you call out. Nobody will come when you call. And you can't feel anything. You can't touch anything. Everything you knew in life has gone. It's a distant memory. You have no senses of sight, touch, taste, sound or smell. Nothing. There's nothing you can eat, yet you have an eternal hunger. Nothing you can drink but an everlasting thirst. And it's hot. You can't even breathe. But there isn't even death to look forward to, to relieve you of that suffering. There is absolutely nothing. Even non-Christians, atheists even, have that inner voice, a conscience or a, a sense of company for themselves when they're in their own silent, quiet place. The consciousness. But that conscience itself will be gone. That will be absolutely nothing. You will be alone, suffering, in totally alone. There will never be relief or escape and it will be forever and ever. An empty, lonely, agonizing vacuum. Do you want that? The atheist will tell you that when you die, there is nothing. And nothing is what I've just described to you. Because you certainly do have a spirit. And when it departs from your body, do you want it to go to nothing? To hell? Or rather this victory? Let's conclude with this victory So we are living in a fallen world, but God has provided the way out. The sting of death, verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is not in vain. You labor in Christ for the crown of victory to rise with him and to be with him for all eternity. Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 10, he said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow attaining to, here it is, the resurrection from the dead. That's the body that is raised, imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. So has Jesus met with you this evening on the first day of the week, this Resurrection Sunday? Has he been among us? Do you want to believe in him and have that resurrection to look forward to, to be in that place, in the place described in the book of Revelations? Listen to this from chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He has said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
to those who are victorious, will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Don't you want that? And Paul goes on in his letter to the Philippians. Not that I have already obtained all this, that is the resurrection that he's looking forward to, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, the resurrection that is, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen.